Glory to Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's 1851 in London. And you've been hearing about for weeks this incredible exposition, this fair. And so they've finally lowered the price because, well, guess what? You're not an aristocrat, so you need to wait till they lowered the price. And you're going to go to this incredible fair that has been put into this massive new building that you keep hearing about. As you turn the corner there in Hyde Park, you see this massive, glistening, glittering building. You've seen cathedrals before. You've seen St. Paul's. You've seen Westminster. But this is like nothing you have seen. This is why, as you see it glittering, they call it the Crystal Palace. Inside, there are 14,000 exhibitors for this fair. Remember, this is 1851. Can you imagine this? 990,000 square feet. That would be a lovely building to have, wouldn't it? (laughs) We wouldn't know what to do with most of that. But the Crystal Palace, it's made of cast iron and glass. The whole thing. And it is incredible. It creates awe within the hearts of all engineers and city planners. This is, as you go through, you see all of these examples of technology. This isn't the fair like maybe the kids are thinking, oh, cotton candy and carousels. I'm sure people were hawking food there. But this is examples of a new way to extract ore out of the ground. Or this is how we process cotton. And you can just, it's miles inside, all covered inside of this glass building. As you get closer to the building inside, you're in awe as well. Like, how in the world is this building even holding itself? We have advanced. We are something. We can build this? You had heard that Queen Victoria herself had opened this because this was, well, it was designed by her husband. So she needed to come and grace it with her presence and say, you know, blessings to this. But this was the height of the empire. This was the great mind, the fruit of the Industrial Revolution. Everything here showed progress. There's another man who visited this Crystal Palace. You may have heard of him. Fyodor Dostoevsky, have you heard of him? He went to this place... And he was completely struck dumb, not out of awe, but terror, horror. Because what he saw instead of a utopian place for the future of mankind and how we're going to be able to assemble all of these things and life is just going to get better and better and better. He saw a controlling mechanism in the future, utilitarian rationalism, a creation of Baal, <laughs> the ancient God, to offer all of our material abundance where we would sacrifice human spirit, autonomy, 
and authenticity. It's really nice and glittery, but it's really basically an anthill for humans, is what Dostoevsky saw. And he writes about, throughout his writings, but especially the notes from the underground, which I don't necessarily think you need to agree with everything with the stark raving man, uh, madman in the notes of the underground, but Dostoevsky saw something here in the Crystal Palace. For all of its gleam, all of its sparkle, he saw the death of man as, he, as we know it. Yes, there's prosperity. Yes, there's unity brought about. It's very rational. But at what cost? The three Hebrew youths whom we celebrate in the Sundays going to Christmas this next Sunday, they too were surrounded by those in awe of a gigantic idol where there was all sorts of festive fanfare around the worshiping of this idol. See, back then, you could be a little bit more in your face. The king just made an idol of himself, a big statue of himself, and said, everybody worship me, and everybody said, okay, I guess you're some kind of god, we have to do this. The Crystal Palace is a, a little bit more you know, nuanced. We progressed somewhat. But you have here the three holy youth encountering the same thing. Power, unity, especially around what we think is going to save us. There's another extreme to this, I think, that is very popular in America because it, uh, part of us just cringes at the idea. Who, who wants to live in an anthill? Who wants to live in that kind of society? You won't ever be the queen. You'll, you'll be the worker, aunt. Uh, and I believe I've heard there's some aunt that goes around, it might be the queen, that even secretes a pheromone that is actually like what we would say propaganda, but they do it on a chemical level. It says, you like this work. You should keep doing this work. Drugs. So, drugs. Here we go. This is the other direction I'm going. The other, for Americans, we, we naturally say, no, I don't want that kind of life. So we go the other direction. Sentiment, our feelings, freedom at all costs. No one's going to tell me what to do. Free love, free living, no work. Maybe somebody will pay for everything for me. Something like a hippie commune of some sorts. And there's always new iterations. We don't have to just say hippie. This overly romantic and absurd European visions of freedom uh, of people outside of Europe, right? You know, those out there, they don't have society, so they're just free. No. <laughs> What truly unites us? Is it going to be our technology, our reason, our abilities, some strong leader, our feelings, our sentiments, and thinking that we've gotten away from all of this, but we just become enslaved in a different direction? Where is our unity found? Where do we truly thrive outside of an anthill? or a supposed place of freedom that is actually just shackled to our passions. This is the challenge of so much of life. And on top of that, modern life, as we head towards kind of anthill existence, is that we do it alone on top of all of this. 
as we go in our cars, and then we go to our little cubicles, and then we go home into the garage and shut the door and then look at screens. What unites us? Where do we find our unity? How do we thrive together as people? The world offers us so many of these things. St. Paul had this same challenge in Corinth. If you've read 1 Corinthians, you are very familiar with church life. You don't even have to read Corinthians to be familiar with church life. But 1 Corinthians should encourage us because church life is hard and there's all sorts of challenges that come. And St. Paul has many, many things to say to the faithful at Corinth. But when you come to the middle of the epistle, the first epistle to the Corinthians, where he discusses the Eucharist, we often focus on the tradition part, right? I received, I was tradition to me that on the night in which he was given up, right, all of the language of the institution or the consecration of the gifts. But the context of all of this where he recalls what has been given to him is all about disunity in Corinth. Various forms of disunity. At the very beginning of the book, you have people saying, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos, I am of all of these little groups. You get to the Eucharist itself, and it seems, reading around this section, that there was problem even in the practice of the Eucharist itself. It seems like there is some... It's not entirely clear exactly what's going on, because when you write a letter, of course, the original recipient, they know what's going on. We're just reading the mail later, so we always have to try to fill that in. But for whatever is going on, there was division at the Eucharist, and it seemed like there was those eating or celebrating, not waiting, not being hospitable, not being unified with their brothers and sisters of Christ. It might have been social or economic divines, those who already had the household, and there's people who are traveling there. And Paul tells them, you need to actually commune. The Eucharist itself is about the unity of Christ. Earlier in the letter, St. Paul describes the Eucharist. This cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. For Paul, there is unity found in Christ. And for Christians, that unity especially, we do this, we enact this, Every time that we come together to participate in the body and blood of Christ. This is one of those really important. We've talked about different aspects by going through the anaphora of the blessing, the calling down and the transformation of the gifts, the offering that we offer up to God. But the Eucharist outside of a sacrifice, outside of being done within the place of heaven that we participate in, it is a sacrament of unity. This morning we have brought a number of souls into the unity of the body via baptism and chrismation, dying to the old man and being raised anew, 
being sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit so that they may take on the life of Christ and live into the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This unity that we find in Christ in Christ is not in ideas. It's not in movements around certain people. And it's not in our sentiments or what we can build through our reason. All of these things that rely upon our doing. Our unity is not going to be found because the person next to us in the church agrees with us about everything that you might call prudential matters. How do we govern the world? How do we do X, Y, and Z? How do we do this? No, you really shouldn't put that kind of oil in your car. No, we shouldn't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. That was a really random example, but whatever. <laughs> people divide over all sorts of random stuff. How many people grew up in a church where they divided over the color of the, the carpet? <laughs> we don't have that kind of spirit of divisiveness here but it is one of those things that we always have to be guarding our heart and looking for because it all just starts in those little bits of criticism, unthankfulness, all of that undermines, destroys the unity that we have in Christ because the unity is found in Christ uh, with his life, his death, his resurrection, that we ourselves die that we live according to his commandments so that we will be resurrected, that we become people of the cross so that we become people of the resurrection. This unity found in Christ is not found through impressing upon us unity from the outside, right? Me talking about it, saying, here's the rules and we all follow the rules. But the unity of Christ found in the unity of the Spirit is our conformity to Him. His meekness, His humility, His love, having within us the mind that He has, that Christ has. This is the humility to admit when we're wrong. The humility to honor other people for the gifts that they have. To serve others. To love others. And maybe the hardest of all, to forgive others. For each of us in the body has our place and our role. This is exactly, so we're talking about the Eucharist, the unity of the body, Paul is, and then he talks about the body. That there are eyes, that there's feet, and that we need to honor all parts of the body. Because right after this, this is the famous chapter, right? The one that everybody likes to read at marriages. But 1 Corinthians 13, this chapter, this hymn to love, this is what Paul talks about. He says there's gifts given to everybody in the body to serve their role in the body. But what is the perfect way? What is the most excellent way? But love. This is the unity that we actually find that is not the glittering crystal palace that is not in some kind of libertarian paradise or strong man idol worship. But this is the unity that we find in Christ. It's exactly what the forefathers that we commemorate longed for. This is why we have the genealogy of Matthew and Deacon. Good job not stumbling over all of the hard names. This is why we have the epistle reading, the hall of faith, as it were, of all those who have gone on before us. And in the Eucharist, the sacrament of unity, we also commemorate and remember and stand with as we stand in the heavens 
all those who have gone before us. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Remember, as Jesus said, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead in the sense of there's no access to them. In the anaphora, after we have called down the Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts, and then we ask God to make them into his body and blood, we then say this prayer. The priest says, again, we offer to thee this reasonable worship for those who have fallen asleep in the faith, ancestors, fathers, patriarchs, prophets, apostles, preachers, evangelists, martyrs, confessors, ascetics, and every righteous spirit made perfect in faith. If you don't feel like you fall in the category of patriarchs, we get you at the end. Every righteous spirit made perfect in faith. All those who have fallen asleep in the faith, especially for the mother of God. This is a sacrament of unity amongst us here present and all those others that are present that we may not be able to see, but that we venerate through the holy icons that is present. The church triumphant standing with the church militant. The ones who are triumphant and us who are still engaged in the battle. This is exactly the scene in the book of Revelation. And they stand around the altar of the slain lamb, the elders bowing down, the martyrs crying out from under the altar, the angels flying and singing. This is why John says on the day of the Lord, he had the apocalypse, right? The revelation. We are unified in Christ and joined at this table. Not because of what we can do, what we can build, what we can rationally make blueprints for, our plans, or just how we feel, or our sentiments. All of this typically blurs other people and their freedom and forces things on others. Christ saves us from the anthill, from the crystal palace, from the allure of our freedom without the actual truth. This individualized life of so much lonely gratification that is modern life for us here. Our conformity to Christ gives us the freedom of God, not to step away from the cross or the crosses put before us, but to embrace that cross in love and faith in God. Because many times the crosses before us, they come from within us, they come from without us, and sometimes they have a name. And that is exactly who we need to love, forgive, and bring into the bond of unity. As a community, this brings us to focus constantly on our need to enliven that flame of love. Because it's so easy for it to go out. Focus, especially as we go into this season of Christmas because we're still in the season of Advent. This is the Nativity Fast. We're not quite there yet. We are held together and truly grow and prosper by being united to Christ, by looking to find someone to honor, to thank, to look to someone to serve, to sacrifice for others. To hear what the deacon will say, let us love one another that with one mind we may confess. So that as we partake of this holy body 
and this holy blood, that we remember the unity that we have in Christ with all of those here present and all of us who have gone to rest in the hope of the resurrection. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.